Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. I'm Ellie Rines, and I'm an emerging gallerist based in Chinatown, New York. I'm Jerry Saltz. I'm the senior art critic for New York Magazine, and I can't write if writing is without you. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. Like the gallery is like a very all-encompassing kind of thing to me. Like I'm talking to the artists every day. <laughs> I spend Christmas with them, like everything. And uh, like I don't have that much of a distinction. And um, I taught myself to re- write by reading art form in the trucks. And I did not understand a single fucking word, not one word. And I was so intimidated, so sad, so horrified. Um, that I decided to try to write like that. I failed, of course. I kind of write like a glockenspiel. I'm more of a Sister Wendy, I think. <laughs> I really want to talk to people. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This week's pairing, Jerry Saltz and Ellie Rines. We have a real treat on the podcast this week. Jerry, of course, is the Pulitzer Prize-winning longtime art critic at New York Magazine, among the most famous and infamous critics around. And Ellie is the founder and proprietor for Gallery 56 Henry and one of the most influential young gallerists in New York City. Her influence seems to grow every day, soon, as we'll talk about, in the expanding footprint of her spaces. In conversation, Jerry and Ellie have a wonderful odd couple chemistry. Ellie is an old soul, and Jerry is relentlessly young in his approach to the world. They both do what they do exceptionally well in a style unlike anyone else, and they both share a totally unrestrained enthusiasm for art and artists. Jerry and Ellie, thank you so much for coming today to chat. Um, I thought one way to start a little bit um, is to talk a little bit about origins or origin stories. Um, Jerry, you have been very vocal about being a slow starter. Um, As big a loser as anybody listening to this feels (laughs) that they are, I promise you I was a bigger loser. And again, as Lucas says, as Ellie knows, um, I've written about this. But anyway, I... um, Graduated a suburban high school. I had never looked at a work of art except once in my life, which I'll get to a little later. Um, I left my high school the night I graduated and never went home. Um, I became, I wanted to be an artist. I started an art gallery, an artist run art gallery in Chicago called Name Gallery. It ran for about 10 years. I curated about 75 shows and about 75 jazz and blues things. In Chicago, that was our center. We didn't really have a lot of abstraction. It was mainly imagism. Again, sort of destroyed and made my taste. When I moved to New York, I wanted to be an artist, and I looked around and I started listening to the demons that were speaking to me. And um, I stopped being an artist. It was very painful, really. To this day, I'm like, God, that was fun. God damn it. I would sit around. Artists, like if they buy one cardboard box in a day, they'll go, I got a lot done, man. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) I became a long-distance truck driver and drove from either New York to Florida. Let me ask you this just very quickly. If I, How long was the artist period? How long were you actively making art? In- I was making art from around 1975 to about 1981. I got the National Endowment for the Arts Grant, huge sum of money, which allowed me to move to New York, $2,500, which was great back then. Um, 
At, in Chicago, I lived in a 4,000-square-foot loft with no heat, and it's very cold in Chicago. So fuck you all people in New York you think this is cold. Um, and no toilet. I'd have to get a bucket of water and to flush it. Um, none of that mattered. I was so ecstatically happy to be standing at my drafting desk. I was illustrating Dante's Divine Comedy, a 25-year project. I was selling my work. I was reviewed in art form. I was going to be a god. I moved to New York, and then, like you and you and everybody listening, I listened to the demons instead of, like you, you fought them off. We do. I'm 70 years old today. I feel 40 inside, but I look like my father. And... Um, but every day I fight those demons. Every morning, I don't know about both of you, I wake up and go, I better quit. It's, I got to throw this in. I got nothing new to say. I thought, what could I do to be in the art world? Because I still loved art. I loved it and ha wasn't going to be an artist. I realized more people in the art world are not artists than are. Lucas Werner, Eleanor Rines. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yeah. Thank you, Jesus God. Thank God. We won't have to. We won't have to we edit ruin that a out. podcast. <laughs> and um, the majority of us are not artists. Right. And I, did either of you begin as artists? No. Yeah. For Lucas, no. Um, anyway, I thought being an art critic would be easy. I'd never written a word in my life. I was the. I never ever was the worst student. I have no degrees. I never went to school. I was an <laughs> asshole. <laughs> And you can see that, unfortunately, in my writing. I try, try to hold the asshole back. But it, and um, I taught myself to write by reading art form in the trucks. And I did not understand a single fucking word, not one word. And I was so intimidated, so sad, so horrified um, that I decided to try to write like that. I failed, of course. I kind of write like a glockenspiel. I'm more of a Sister Wendy, I think. <laughs> I really want to talk to people. You can tell from this long intro. It should have been one minute long. <laughs> no, no, They're no. both making faces. And um, so I finally started writing like myself. And one day I was going to go to Europe in 1998. Hadn't writing teeny cr criticism here and there. My name was getting made. And Vince Letty from The Village Voice called me and asked, would you like to be the art critic? I began writing, and I hate to step on my own line, but about a month after I started, and I thought I was a god, like, man, I am the shit. I'm really good at this, god damn it. I gave my work to Roberta, and she was Roberta Smith is my wife. She's the co-chief art critic of the New York Times, and I think the best critic alive. But that's me. I'm very prejudiced, duh. And I gave it to her, and I was watching her read it, and I thought, man, she's going to love me, tell me I'm great. And she looked across the table, and this is a true story. She said, if you don't get better, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> and so that's when I got busy and I became an art critic. I'm sorry. Wow. Incredible. 10, 20 minutes later. No, 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 no. That's, listen, let's would, wrap this thing up. Was Roberta already writing? She was a well-established art critic, had been, a, I think, an editor at Art Form, editor at Art in America, and had been writing for The Times for about five years. Well, the reason I started there is because you have an unorthodox story, to say the least, and an unorthodox style, I would say, your approach as a kind of people's critic or a Sister Wendy, as you put it. So does Ellie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and so I over mean to... she's like my soul sister who hates me. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> and I admire her. <laughs> I adore you. And, uh, and it, it felt like such a... That's why the pairing feels so good, but also a, a good way to, to turn to Ellie and hear a little bit about your also unorthodox approach and journey, and I would say equally bold and unapologetic personality or sense yeah, of self. Yeah. Well, I started off, I'm born outside of Detroit, and I was studying art history in college and also Chinese. Where? At Union College. Don't know. It's a small school. It's like 2,000 kids. Where? Uh, it's connected in New York. Great. I was going to pretend like I knew. <laughs> it's a, it's one of the oldest colleges in America, and it has a symmetrical campus. Right. Symmetrical. Yeah. That's why I chose it. 
Makes sense. I good was reason, like, good reason. checks out. <laughs> I was like, this looks pretty academic. I'll go here. I won't go too wayward. So I went there. And um, I was contacted by Sotheby's. I had applied to work with, um, with Chinese orphans. Um, and someone had dropped out of the Sotheby's program. So Sotheby's contacted me because they wanted someone that speaks Chinese. So then I was at Sotheby's and mm. then Christie's. And then a brief stint at Nodler. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's where I learned everything. Wow. But, and then I was at Craigstar, which is where you and I first met. We did? Yeah. Roberta always dragged me in there, and I think it's a great place. Yeah, it's really I'm wonderful. I'm sorry I forgot we met there. That's okay, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but then what? So you were at Craigstar. So I was at Craigstar. It was like really specific <clears throat> exhibitions. Mm-hmm. That are spectacular, yep. um, a catalog yep. for every show. Yep. 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 And I increasingly wanted to work with younger artists where you had like more of a role in their development. Like I kind of wanted to like get in there a bit more. Mm. And so after Craig Star, I had a space that was really, really tiny. It was in a um, like an elevator shaft, pretty much. Where? On Gansevoort Street. And I never was there. Where? Yes. It's just you'd look through the window. Mm -hmm. Yes. I saw one show there. Yeah. I can't remember who. Betty Tompkins? <laughs> yeah, no. Betty Tompkins yeah. did a show there. Wow. Yes, okay. It was really fantastic. Okay. And we did these ersatz prints because I didn't have insurance, so we couldn't put a real painting of hers in there. So we had prints in there. And Betty sat there with, like, boots on, just, like, drinking whiskey during the opening because we had, like, the openings would just be on the street. Wow. And I was pretty young when I started, so I was 25, and it was really fun because all the people that I knew in the art world, that was kind of like the hub where mm. everyone would get together. So there would be an opening, like, every four to six weeks, mm. and the whole block would be taken over. I'd just have, like, a bottle of whiskey and some of those, like, little glasses that you use to take uh, medicine. Fantastic. <laughs> that was pretty old fun. School. Very old school. <laughs> but you must have had lots of old school experiences. I did. Looking but, at, yeah. looking the way art looking used to be in New York, in Soho or in, I mean, you know, earlier in Soho yeah. and then even in Gansberg. Many, yeah. Many different art worlds. But this, and, and, and David's Werner started this way, but a larger scale of just this guy sitting around the front desk and the same way Ellie sits around the front desk. And so you had huge things. And so did you know a lot? Were you staying up late every night with other artists and stuff? Yeah, I was spending a lot of time because I wanted to just like meet all the artists. I felt like I'd kind of missed this block from being like in kind of blue chip mm -hmm. sort of stuff. So I felt this need to kind of catch up. And what hole do you think you were trying to fill? Well, I wanted to have a space where artists could kind of do like a zen stroke sort of approach, like really focus on something specific mm. that their primary gallery might not want to show because it might be like hugely unsaleable or something like that. So this kind of like focused iteration so that someone could really like flesh out something that they're trying to do. Like as a gallerist, I think it's really important to just exhibit artists' work so that they can then like feel that they put something out in the world and then that's how they progress to make their next body of work. How much was your rent in the very beginning on Henry Street ballpark figure? Well, Gansevoort Street was like 1500 Great. Which was either like a huge steal or a ripoff. Rip rip it's yeah. unclear. And then Henry Street is 3500 Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. That's why you could do it. Yeah, I've had that flexibility, so that's also why I've been able to be like a little bit more risky mm. with exhibitions where I can do something like shoot from the hip a bit that's really fun, too. Like when you offer an artist a show, right. that's like... The fun part. Yeah, that's the fun part, and then you just work for the artist. That's like the only, uh, <laughs> that's the only moment when you really have any power. What people may not know about LA's uh, 56 Henry Street is that you go in there, it's a wee teeny space, smaller than your one bedroom in your New York apartment, tiny. And the art always looks pretty great. You know, you bump into things. <laughs> but then she's sitting around in her kitchen. In the back. Slash office, slash apartment, slash stove. <laughs> and there's always like four other kids there. True that. And uh, if you're old, you immediately feel old. But that's great. That You should have 
discomfort and everybody's kind of welcoming there. Do you have you hung oh out God. with her? Yeah, absolutely. I and go there on Sundays. I wow. I've been I'm going to the opening tomorrow. Yeah. Fabulous opening tomorrow, which I'll be at. So Ellie, how does it work for you when you offer that first show? You know, like what has what has preceded the offering of the first show? What conversations have happened or what feeling have you had? Yeah, I look at a lot of art all the time and I just try to see like as much as I can and then visit a lot of studios, let something like sit for a little bit. And I'm really interested in New York artists in particular. Hey man, I'm all about local for this pandemic period. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really nice to kind of be looking in our own backyard a bit. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of showing a New York artist and helping set them up with European galleries or L.A. galleries. Mm. And I feel like that's a me doing a good job at my job. Um, mm. And so sometimes it's almost based on like a, a certain style of painting. So I might be kind of like curious, like, OK, I'm seeing a lot of people that are making figurative painting and then I want to kind of look around and see who I think is actually has like a chance at kind of pushing the dialogue forward a little bit Um, like Joe Messer's work Mm. kind of like teetering I was talking to her on the phone today and I was saying that like if describe her work a teeny weeny teeny bit yeah it's like in between figuration and abstraction okay which is a really generic way of describing work, which no. sounds like every like artsy like no. bio line. I was telling her, I was like, if you ever are on something like that, Don't we're that. gonna have to like make sure that we get them a different line I with like it. Like that, but go we on. talk about like Delacroix a bit or something like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like her, based on that description, you could be kind of like, okay, is this really gonna be something that's interesting? But then like the experience of the surface of the painting and the way that she weaves in and out of it and the rigor with which she's approaching the canvas, to me is really exciting where I'm like, okay, this artist has like immense potential. Mm. And when I offered her a show at the gallery, I'd known Joe since she was an undergrad at Cooper mm-hmm. um, because I'd hung out with like a bunch of that group of artists. And so I'd always looked at her work and been kind of interested because I know her personally. And then I saw a painting of hers that was in a group show and I was like, oh wow, this really has something to it. And then one of my favorite things is when you offer an artist an exhibition and they're not quite ready yet for the show. So I said, you know, and I I try to be really honest with the artist because I think it's important to yeah. be that way and it's much more respectful. So I said to her, you know, I don't think you're ready for a show yet, but let's right. schedule you for this time. And then I'm going to come back in the studio in like two months and I'll come back again in four months. And if you're not ready enough, like I care too much about your work to have you like do the wrong first step so like we can push it back. I keep my schedule like really malleable for that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love galleries that sometimes will say, I'm not even sure what our next show is. Well, not that far, but two <laughs> yeah. shows from now. No, I'm fine that. with right, that. Right, 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 right. <laughs> fine. Extend a show, don't. Yeah, exactly. How, do you look at art, Lucas Werner, similar to how Ellie does at this at the different end? Do you go to studios? Yes, absolutely. And of I have unknown to s- artists, et cetera. Yes, less than I would like to. Sure, of course. But I will say that this new venture we started, Platform, uh, which aggregates a lot of great galleries, Ellie's among them, and brings a lot of artists that I haven't heard of to the table, that's made me very excited. Right. um, Because I'm looking at, even if just images initially, um, you know, every week I'm looking at hundreds of artworks that might be coming from all over the country. And so we really get a sense for what's in the air, which is very exciting. And then, of course... Like what Ellie's describing, you can see uh, this person feels like they're taking what's in the air and distilling it in a really interesting way, which in a funny way is also what you are doing when you go in. Yeah. Yeah. And how old are you, Lucas Werner? 31. 31. And Ellie, do you mind if I ask you? 33. Okay. Um, I think this is a good opportunity for Lucas Werner also to answer the charges against uh, a platform and stuff like, man... He's sucking up all those email addresses. He knows where all your goddamn collectors are, man. And uh, they're going to steal your artists, which, uh, what are the, uh, what are the... I think those are the main ones. <laughs> I think that's the main one. And they're all going corporate. So answer that. Sure. Is there any interest in stealing artists? Absolutely not. In terms of uh, email addresses, all of the ones that anyone who transacts with a gallery's artist, all that information goes back mm-hmm. to that gallery. So platform was... Came, came to what be doing. What is platform for the listeners that might not know? Oh, yeah. It is um, 
it is a website that hosts partner galleries like Ellie's, like 56 Henry, um, who each exhibit typically two artists, four works per artist. So really like an art fair model in that way, a limited amount of work. Um, and it, it refreshes every month. So there's a new group of 12 galleries every month. Um, and it is totally click to buy. And it was definitely a product of COVID, right? It was something mm -hmm. that came out of the fact that everything was shut down. And it was a kind of a charitable endeavor first that we then spun into a standalone business because we felt like there really was excitement and an audience, both from the gallery side and uh, the audience buyer side. And I think now we will, now it, what's interesting is it will take shape in a world where brick and mortar is returning and art fairs are returning. Yeah. And we'll see. In the flesh. Yeah, in saying. the flesh, exactly. We love the touch antenna. We need each yeah, other as absolutely. much as we hate each other. Absolutely. We love each other. Um, absolutely. I was curious if we, if you guys would each talk a little bit more about what you are seeing, like if there are trends that you're seeing, Jerry, that you're excited about, mm -hmm. things artists are thinking about that seems particularly stimulating to you, right. um, problems, whether those are political or environmental or, or formal, um, but things that are really kind of attracting you or that are giving you that tip of the fingertip feel. A couple of things. I think we all know, and it goes without saying, that more art is being made by more people from more places and more underrepresented people than ever in our lifetimes or the history of art. Mm. This cannot be bad. It is not possible mm. to have 75% more of the story being told mm. than has ever been told in 50,000 years and call that bad. There's going to be a lot of mediocre art shown, an enormous amount of mediocre sh art shown in that. But if somebody like, I'll only punch up Right. If somebody epically huge, it's going to have like a museum shows, like say Sean Scully, a mediocre stripe painter who people <laughs> love, love, sells for millions. Good for him. I'm, I'm for it. I don't have to love the work. If, if a mediocre white male artist can have a place in the museum and a career, there's nothing wrong with for a time mm. having mediocre uh, Jewish artists, Estonian artists, which I am a woman, a black artist, Ecuadorian artist, queer, I'm fine with that because as a 70-year-old, I've learned something really interesting. It sorts out over time. Mm -hmm. And almost always the mediocre artists tend to fall away. Mm. And you might complain, but they're all making money. And I would say, I want everyone in the art world to make money the good, the bad, and the very bad. Because it is then that we get to see what you are. And I don't have a job unless you all are open. Mm. And enough art is being sold to keep you open. So I'm that. So other than the art, the world being made safe for portraiture, right. which I'm not positive about, and a lot <laughs> of it looks like photo... Um, not photorealist, but obviously generated from a photo and the artist isn't uh, developing a surface, a color, a material, a touch, a palette, an organization that seems personal or driven or original enough. That's a problem for me that there it's like a zombie real, realism, if you will. Mm. But even that, you just never know. Something good could come out of it. Right. Do you think about um, other historical moments, Jerry? So like... You know, I think one always forgets that there were lots of famous artists who were famous in courts who made lots of money mm -hmm. that no one has ever heard of anymore, right? That this idea that there are yeah. successful artists in the moment, I feel we're often blinded by, you know, immediate success or market success. There's no moment like this because there's never been more money on the fat place, fat planet of the earth moving towards our world and but to more artists. Mm. That doesn't make it good. We know that because every museum expanded to the point where every museum is not good. I mean, there's these empty atriums that have to be filled with 50-foot-long wall labels. And, 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 and viewers spend 20 minutes looking at the label, three minutes taking a selfie. Again, I'm fine. Right. But programming right. the work, it will be there. I'm not complaining about any of it. This is the situation. So I don't compare it to any other time. Mm -hmm. And what it helps is somebody both like the David's Werner Gallery to keep trying to do what it does and the 5600 Gallery to keep trying to do what it does. 
And for me, that really works. Does it work for you, Ellie, or is it oppressive? (laughs) I think it's good. I like what you were talking about with this kind of figurative portraiture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul Schimmel said he called it regional figuration, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really great. This kind of thing where it's like, uh, I don't need to see another portrait of someone's aunt. (laughs) <laughs> so like a lot Unless of it's good, that you're you know? seeing. Yeah. But I wonder too if it's kind of I was thinking earlier today about like the internet and how we were supposed to like COVID was supposed to be this thing where everything would like go online and we could experience art online mm-hmm. so much more. But I feel like I've kind of had the opposite response of it where now I just really want to see things like in person. I want to see like the touch of the hand. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of um airbrush painting. Right. In the Hammer Biennial. So I was like, oh, okay, is this going to be a thing now where there's going to be all this like mm. airbrush painting that we see or this kind of like messy, we call it hot girl figuration, where it's like, like a hot girl like doing kind of like a genius. I could never ever say that. I feel like right. that might show up in one of your articles. Actually. Never, hot girl figuration. Hot girl figuration. Hot Estonian, maybe. Hot Estonian figuration. <laughs> But, like, that kind of trend of, like, where there's, like, no edges in the paintings. Like, they're just these, like, washy. Right. And someone, like, posing in front of it. And so it's kind of like, okay, what's the internet doing to all of this? The proliferation of images on the internet has made it very difficult to talk about consistent or coherent schools of art, I find. But that's a good thing. You like that. Yeah, I'm fine that there's no school of this-ism or that-ism. Because that was always shorthand. If I even said a word like, minimalism or abstract expressionism, we don't know what the hell that is. Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman and, you know, that's all abstract expressionist. But I think that's okay. The same way it's great that there's no Clement Greenberg being a bully. Right. You don't want somebody like me to have, quote, power. Roberta, yes. Because she's Quaker (laughs) and she tells the damn truth every time. So watch the fuck out. No, but, okay, fair enough. But... In a world in which those schools aren't, don't seem to be coming together, in which, let's say, individual artists are occupying their own audience or there are almost like artist brands, how are you or how do you see us making sense of the historical narrative? I mean, you know, it's like, how do you feel you are making sense of how people are organizing themselves in visual groupings, right, or in aesthetic groupings? Well, I look more to see, like, who is doing the best job within a group of artists that might be kind of in dialogue with each other. Mm. So like everything sort of tapers down and ideally the work that I'm supporting will be like still relevant in 20, 30, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And so I do it, I guess like some galleries you'll see where they have like a very specific aesthetic, like they might be really into minimalism or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I more have kind of like a, <laughs> I don't even know what you would call it. Case by case. <laughs> yeah, but case by case where I think that each artist is like just saying something that's new and different. And that's what I care about is just kind of like reviewing as many like images as possible until I think that someone's like really hitting their stride on something. Um, I guess what's interesting to me is is schools at the very least are – a crutch for identifying where a conversation is happening, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So at the very least, yes, that's a heuristic. Yes, there's a problem. But at the very least, you're saying, oh, these guys are interested in right. space and abstraction. And that makes it easier to grab hold of it and say, we, this is a more interesting example of that exploration than this one over here. We definitely have that, and that's politics. Got it. Identity, politics, gender, representation, that is the conversation. Now, it may annoy half of the people listening to this and the other half, God bless us all, that we get to be talking about this for the first time and see what will play out. But I think that the formal analysis of art, and this leaves me a little behind Mm -hmm. because I come from like original, it doesn't matter where I come from. It's it's and the new work is very original, but it's politics and it's uh, labels and it's uh, theory are baked into the work as never before. That is not a bad thing, but that's the ism, mm-hmm. and that's going to wash out, and we'll see how it plays. Obviously, some great artists will come out of yep. it. Chris Ophelia is one of the great visionaries of our or any 
time, and you can theorize him from now until tomorrow, and yet his work stands alone. Like any great work of art, like uh, Ellie, uh, 56 Henry shows Cynthia Talmudge, who looks just like an uh, impressionist at first, or a post-impressionist, or the more insane out there, Al Friedman, who looks just like, uh, at one point I had to walk into her back room and go, can you explain why this isn't my Klaus Oldenburg? And they blasted my head off. We said, who's she? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. And I got it with one answer. They said, who's she? And I was like, oh, my God. Who is speaking (laughs) changes what is said. So the answer to Lucas's question is baked in. Very, and would you agree that that we're in this moment now where all of these new problems have been brought to the table, and now it's sort of it's 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 a not a wait and see, but the great artists will make great art in this new context, which might be identity or let's say less formal considerations, more narrative or. I don't know if you would frame. I, it that I way. think it's as formal it. and as narrative. It's just. Uh, we're learning how to read it yes, all yes, together, yes, yes. and it's hard, and it's going to be great. Yeah, I kind of feel like critical theory-based painting is on its way out. Amen. <laughs> like I, I, I kind of feel that, like you can't. What is that? Like, I want to like someone you, but... like a like a white boy that went to Columbia right. that's making a painting, and they're explaining the painting to you based on like Derrida. Like I think that that's done. I think that left in like 2020, maybe before. Maybe before. I feel yeah, like. it was boring. I think that that's over. When was zombie formalism? Well, zombie formalism, I liked what you and I said about it. What did we say? Well, we were talking about the Damien Hirsch show in Venice, and then we were talking about zombie formalism, and this was maybe in like 2000. Zombie formalism was 2013. Mm-hmm. You and I were having this conversation maybe in like 2016 or something, and... I think that zombie formalism was about that, like, you come up with an idea for what the painting is. Yes. And then you make the painting based on this preconceived idea of what the final result will look like. Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't have, like, this sort of intuitive kind of nature to it. And the final result was programmed to look like final results that we'd already seen, like the children of celebrities in a way. Mm -hmm. They already vaguely look like Kirk Douglas or uh, Goldie Hawn, or whoever the parent of the movie star is. So when we see a formalist painting, we're like, oh, it's an all-white painting, so this must be a painting. And it must be good. Because See, I'm going into it. But that's... that's yeah, like yeah. looks like art, and it looks, looks like expensive. art must be good. Right. But I and think there will be three... will come back a bit. I think that yes. we're on the cusp of like... We because better. It's been so exhausted Jesus. with all this figuration... And I think that we're really, like, yearning to see something. Like, I like how the gallery kind of, like, I like by being in Chinatown and having all these people that, like, love art that are coming in all the time, I get to kind of, like, hear everyone's opinions <laughs> often. And just even, like, having work up in the back room and seeing what people gravitate towards, I have noticed, like, a lot more people coming towards Do you have critics coming in? Because, again, I'm going to be frank, and I could be wrong. I see a lot of galleries. I'm out there. It's my only life. I almost never see critics Mm. in galleries. Uh, It's a huge problem. Like, you and Roberta really hit the pavement. And it's awful to have two 70-something-year-old critics who don't speak 33- and 31-year-old language anymore. We're not bad, but we don't speak this language. Right, right. You need 30 to 50-year-old critics willing to say, 56 Henry was a bad show, this Werner was a bad one, this was a good one, and it's not happening. Have you seen this thing, uh, Manhattan Art Review? Um, um, No, I haven't. I'm going to send it it to you. It's good. Yeah, it's this cool new kind of blog where they rate shows based on one star to five stars. Terrifying, but it's a start, man. (laughs) I was just going to say, you know, one of the things I've noticed, I noticed in the previous two years, and it feels like part of the game changer, is that the screen obsession has led us to become very literate at what looks good on a screen as opposed to what looks good in person. I find myself much more capable of making those judgments when I'm looking at art, like, oh, this reproduces really well digitally. People want to make things that will reproduce well because they understand the biggest dissemination capability or the biggest distribution network is a digital one. It's a feedback loop that does feed itself. And whenever I post, honestly, when I post on Instagram, 
I have accidentally fallen into this because I don't post a lot of kind of uh, complex or nuanced abstract art. Mm -hmm. And I always have this great fiber artist. Um, I can't remember her name right now. Uh, uh, she has a disability and she goes, you never post fiber or abstract art, Jerry. And I'm always going, you're right. It just doesn't show up on this mm -hmm. one platform. Yes. But if a 70-year-old critic can figure out how to use goddamn Instagram, younger critics should be developing TikTok magazines, Snapchat uh, uh, blogs. It's insane. Right. Don't leave it to me to take over this stupid realm. I kind of have like a a controversial view on the internet and art. Yes, I want to hear it. <laughs> like, I kind of don't know that they need to mix the way that we think they should. Got it. Like maybe art's just like going to get a haircut and like the internet's the internet and one's right. a physical experience and, one's and the other is the internet. Like I don't know why we have to keep forcing this overlap mm. of how art needs to exist on the internet because it mm. shouldn't really have to. And we've done like a pretty bad job with it. Like... When the internet was first created, mm. people thought, oh, this is going to really change TV. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I was like, whoa, TV is going to be so different now. And then it didn't really change TV that much until kind of recently. But it, like, it's like Al Gore had that, like, current TV station, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which no one's heard of or watched. Yeah. And, like, NFTs, it's like the work is so bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, the quality it's, of it yeah. is, like, really awful. So it's, like, kind of disheartening. And... At the beginning of COVID, it was really nice sometimes. Like, I would love to be able to, like, thoroughly kind of experience, like, a Spruth Moggers show mm. on, like, a laptop or a phone or whatever. Mm. But this whole kind of, like, push of how we're going to, like, intersect the two, I don't know. Mm. I don't mm. buy it. Mm. But by intersect, you mean specifically, like, the NFT thing, right? That somehow the internet's going to become integral to making or... Or that it's like this integral kind of like prism, like thinking of the internet as being a tool for experiencing art. Like maybe it shouldn't, shouldn't be a tool be. for experiencing, experiencing art. It right. should be like a resource to do additional research. Right, 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 right. To look at something and think, oh, okay, this might be compelling. I want to see it in person. Right. I think that, yeah. you know, it's a nice tool for you the same way that you might read an excerpt from a book and decide that you want to read the book. right. Good. But I don't think that it needs to be something that's held on like the same. It doesn't need to be like equated with experiencing work on person in person. I totally agree. I think everyone would agree. Have you ever sold a work of art that somebody's never seen? Well, yeah, she's of course. smiling. <laughs> <laughs> no, I need it, but I just don't think that like it's there's there is this kind of problem like the Mary Weatherford show that was at Gagosian, mm -hmm. like. I was looking at it through my phone because it looked better to experience it through my screen. Way better on phone. Yeah, than it did. Anyway. You know, I have one bigger question which I would like to I'd ask. like to know everybody's first art work of art that blew them away and you died from it and you changed your life. What work of art do you remember that just you were thunderstruck, that got inside of you, that blew you away and you knew it had landed in you and that changed your consciousness and that is still in you a little. There, are, The answer is there are two very different experiences. The first one was really an experience of what an artist's brain could be like, and that was Jason Rhodes. And that was seeing full room-sized installations where I knew that there was a system at work, there was a language being developed. I didn't understand the language. But I knew that if I spent a lot of time with it, if I looked at the power cables and the buckets and everything else, that I might somehow begin to unpack that language. And that blew me away. Um, Total chaos, but absolutely organized, you're right, yeah. with a metaphysics that is like an extra wrinkle in somebody else's brain. That's exactly right. So it was this feeling of knowing that there was meaning there, but the meaning being just a little too far away to make sense of, you know, and, and but I, that I knew it was worth trying to make sense of it. And then I remember having a very powerful, kind of more traditional, more like religious style experience with a beautiful red Clifford Still painting, you know, just with a fissure in the middle. Um, you know, it was, it was, mm. it's a silly thing to say, a typical Clifford Still, what is that? But it had, um, it was very well balanced. It had this beautiful lightning-like gash down mm. the middle. Mm -hmm. um, it was a little more orange on the left and a little more red on the right. And then it was sort of like had a pale, the red and orange were pale in the middle. 
And I just remember seeing it. I was probably 10 mm. or 11 and just sitting in front of it and being completely mesmerized, you know, and that, yeah. So two very different, one of complexity and one of total kind of silence and rivetedness. Brilliant. I think that Clifford still is undervalued, partly his fault for keeping all his work in one place. Everyone should go to Denver to see that museum. But one of the most self-explanatory, clear, abstract artists who ever lived, mm -hmm. you're right. I would agree. Can I ask Ellie now what Please. hers are? Do you have any that come to mind? I'm really sentimental about when I look at art and like thinking kind of of the role that I have with it being something that like an artist can then have like the opportunity to like travel and see more things and kind of have like a breakthrough from like sales or confidence or whatever it is. So I guess that I can't really remember right now what the first work of art that I saw. I was like, oh, this is really like magical and something insane is happening here that I wouldn't be able to kind of like wrap my head around. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think of like specific moments like um, Rauschenberg, like shirt boards from 52. So it's the cardboard insert that is um, inside of a shirt when you get it back from the uh, laundry. And there are these really wonderfully sparse collages that were made in 52 and 53 when uh, Rauschenberg was in Europe and North Africa with Cy Twombly. And for Rauschenberg, you could kind of like condense his work down into like nine months maybe where you can look at the erased de Kooning's, the white paintings, the black paintings. And then you've got the shirtboards, which are very much like the prelude to the combines. And so that to me kind of like, it's like the gallery is like a very all encompassing kind of thing to me. Like I'm talking to the artists every day. <laughs> I spend Christmas with them, like everything. And uh, like, I don't have that much of a distinction. Mm. And so art and life, actually, as with Rauschenberg said, he wanted to work in the gap between art and life. That almost is what 56 Henry is a little. Thank you. Yeah. yeah so I just get, I kind of get sentimental now when I look at things. Mm. And to see sort of like where an artist is at, like in the Hockney show at the Met when you could see the second room when he was able to go to Los Angeles mm. and like his whole color palette opens up so fantastically. Right. He can get more gay, open up and get more colorful. Yeah. And, and portray a light that our Americans did not allow ourselves to quite embrace that light because mm. it was, you know, la la land and mm. all that. Mm. I, I wanted to say I think that Rauschenberg is the American Picasso. Mm -hmm. that more things come through him, like him or hate him, than I think any American artist. So. We have to ask you, Jerry, what was, what was your experience? Um, I've written about this, and I've actually thought about it, but when I was 10 years old, living in the suburbs of Chicago, I'd never looked at art. My mother, out of nowhere, drove us, drove just me. I have two other brothers, younger and I was 10, and she drove me into the Art Institute of Chicago, walked me in, got me in, and left me there. I know, it's weird, right? Parked me there, and she said, look around. And she had never talked about art to me. She had taken me to some terrible, boring, great classical uh, piano concerts. But I was like, just wanted to play baseball, and I was just sitting there in my suit and tie, hating it. And in the museum, I wandered, very bored, very confused, very frightened, like, mm. where am I? What is this? I don't know what these are. And somehow, from across a room on the second floor at the Chicago Art Institute, this colorful diptych that only decades later did I realize was a Giovanni di Paolo diptych painted, I think, in 1490-something mm -hmm. in, in uh, Siena or Florence. I don't remember. On the left of the diptych was a man behind some bars in a robe, and there were people outside this prison cell talking to him. And then on the right-hand side, his neck had been stuck through the bars. His head was on the ground, and there was blood spurting everywhere, and there was a huge swordsman sheathing his huge sword and somebody coming to put the head on a plate. 
And I remember looking back and forth and back and forth for the longest time. And suddenly, I looked around everything and I thought, everything in this building could be telling a story. Mm. This language beyond words, this operating system to examine consciousness itself. I mean, I'm 10 years old thinking like, there's secrets. This is like a magic carpet. This is like I was seeing in tongues, basically. <laughs> and in that second, I fell in love. And here's the sad part of the story. A month later, my mother committed suicide. And she was never spoken of again in my house from that day to this. Mm. We went to school the next day. Uh Everybody in our suburbs started treating me different the way they started treating you different when they found out something about you, whoever's listening. It wasn't like all the other kids. I grew invisible antenna, withdrew into myself to communicate in a cynical, superior way with the rest of the world and forgot about the painting for the rest of my life until I went to Europe the very first time it was standing in front of Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, which acted as a Madeline mm. to me. And I went, I know this feeling of a painting telling me who I am, mm. and a, a shot back. So wow. those were my first two paintings, and my favorite art I have ever seen is cave painting. Do you wish they'd tell you what the colors were? Or you don't care? What? Like how, like, with Van Gogh, like how there's, like, that red... It's used a lot to circle the eyes. Yes. But it's all kind of like evaporated pretty much. And then when you're at a cave painting, do you want them to like tell you what colors were there or you don't care? You sort of can see it. You can. And like you know, by the way, when you study a cave painting, and again, this could be for other podcasts, right. that the they had material culture, as did Neanderthal, mm. where they're on the trade routes, uh, uh, season to season, chasing the herds, the fish, the whatever, they would trade different materials to make different things. So flints were used from one area to make the stones in another, a different color pigment was applied to Neanderthal's hand stone axes. Now, why paint a stone hand axe? To be pretty. Mm. There's no other reason. Or to make it, whatever, worth more. And uh, cave paintings are have, uh, you'll see, these are people that looked at mammals for 100,000 years. There is no magic in them. There is the greatest observation of mammals mm. that has ever been done in our species. And it's a tragedy they didn't paint people. Mm. Just think of what we would have seen. To the last thing I wanted to ask about is things coming in the future. Mm. And I thought, Jerry, maybe you would talk a little bit about the book that you have coming out. And then, Ellie, you would talk a little bit about your new space because those are both very exciting. Forgot. Um, <laughs> We and, like talking to each other too much. Yeah, exactly. We're having too much fun. But of course, many people listening will know your How to Be an Artist, will know your book, and, and will likely know, since you put it on Instagram, that there is another book coming in the coming fall, I believe, yes. right? In November? November 1st, I'm releasing a collection of my work plus a few new essays called Art is Life, uh, which for me means people ask, what is art made out of? Art is made out of life. The deep content of what you're seeing is life, history, people's biographies, everything. And it's a collection, and it really covers art of the 21st century. And I hope to also write about what I was trying to do, quote, how to be an art critic in my own work. And it covers this arc of the total paradoxical change of the art world that we've just lived through and that art history is about to be rewritten. Mm. And it was an important, important, important period. In some ways, there is no such thing as the greatest generation. But in many ways, I think that we have lived through in the last 30 years among the greatest art I've ever seen. Mm. And we all have different artists. And I'm not talking about old art. No. So that's what the book will be. And I hope everybody will buy it. And I'll give you your money back if you don't like it. It's cheap. Cheaper than a pizza, for God's sake. <laughs> 20 bucks, I think. Thank you, Jerry. Ellie, and your new space, you're expanding? Yes. Um, we're wow. opening a second location at 105 Henry, which is down the street from 56 Henry. 
<laughs> and um, will you change the name of the gallery? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even really figured that out yet. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we'll just kind of take it as it comes. Mm-hmm. But I guess I was kind of into this thing where we did something for Cynthia Talmadge's show when it opened. We were all at the National Arts Club. Lucas was there. And everyone was kind of talking about like how they should take the place over, like that they should make the National Arts Club cool. Yeah. <laughs> but well, like I kind of though was like a little annoyed with that. I was like, oh, is this really what's gonna like why don't you just be in the room and appreciate the room instead of like thinking that what this room needs, like what this molding really needs is you to be there. Right. And so I kind of have been sort of like just like, I don't want to expand the gallery into, like, multiple cities and that kind of stuff. I just want to have, like, a slightly larger space for the artists to be making work instead of it being too, like, ego-driven of kind of, like, a, an endeavor. Mm. So it's pretty simple. It's just, like, the artists are making larger paintings, and they've also been able to figure out, like, their studio apparatus to produce more work. What does that mean? Like, just kind of as like an artist starts off and they're like just graduating from school, they might not have this kind of like formal studio practice. They might just like work on like a show by show basis. But then as like they're able to kind of develop more and more and have more confidence and maybe like not have a second job, then they can just be dedicating their time to their studio full time. And yeah, take on bigger spaces. How big is the new space? Um, It's like, I think 800 square feet. Is It's a storefront? Yeah, it's on the corner, which I like. Who doesn't like. love storefronts, for yeah. God's sake? Yeah, we've man. got to make it as easy as possible and for everyone. Is the floor wood or cement? It's We're going to pour cement. God damn We've it. been doing the renovation in like two weeks because we've been really excited about it. So it's going to open very soon. So Tully's in there in Diego, and they just work all the time. They took the day off today, but pretty much we just took down the walls Took down the drop ceiling. There's some nice tin ceilings. I'm keeping it. There's a lot of sunlight that comes into it, which I think is really lovely. And it's two walls. And, yeah. So this means that you will go between both spaces and have somebody in each at all times. Yeah, on a scooter. I'm going to get a a segue. A little segue. Genius (laughs) idea. With Wi-Fi Lawsuits. in it. So is it a block from 56 Henry? It's like a block and a half. And Near I really, where? What's the cross street? It's on Henry and Allen. Allen Street is equivalent to First Avenue Kids yes. in New York. And so my friend Leo Fitzpatrick, one of my best friends, he has a gallery on the block. Mm-hmm. There's another gallery, King's Leap. No gallery. And then... Uh, I don't know these. Yeah, Lucas, do you? situations are down He's, the street. He does. Yeah. It's a new art world, people. You're all sitting there going, oh, man, the art world is assassinating itself. On the contrary, it's being reborn. It's very porous, yeah. even in these hard times. I think it's been a great time for new galleries to open. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yes, yeah, so I'm just taking it as it comes, doing what the artists need and being kind of flexible. I could do this forever. Guys, on Prove it. 24-7. <laughs> Prove it. And the 11s, <laughs> let's do traffic. Now. <laughs> exactly, the karaoke. I've never done karaoke. We're in Koreatown. We're close. We should. There's great places around here. Guys, thank you so much for, for being on here. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you, Lucas Ferner. Thank you, Ellie. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswarner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Warner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.